Section 5 of Mrs. Diamond. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Mrs. Diamond by Anne Isabella Thackeray Ritchie. Book 1, Chapter 5 The Atelier. I had a little chamber in the house as green as any privet hedge a bird might choose to build in though the nest itself could show but dead brown sticks and straws aurora lee susie's room was over the sitting-room and looked towards the garden it was a narrow little whitewashed slip the bed was hung with yellow curtains that were fastened to a gilt crown suspended from the ceiling there was a marble washstand with a looking-glass with one cyclops eye reflecting the light there was a wooden chest of drawers and a trunk containing her modest possessions and a peg or two from which hung susie's cloak and her black bonnet with its long veil as the breeze came blowing through the open window the veil gently floated there was also an armchair with four straight legs and a huge yellow paunch a little pair of red slippers stood against the bed the walls were quite bare except for a little pencil drawing of the dear old rectory. The room itself opened upon a wide landing which was used for many purposes, as a store for washing lines, for potato sacks, piles of firewood, and besides all this it contained various ladders and trap-doors and long poles. Susie, who had got up early one morning soon after her arrival, was startled by a faint scream, and— opening her door found an unexpected pair of neat black legs suspended mid-air from a ladder which had been let down from the ceiling help help said madame's voice somewhat muffled from above denise venet i am lost i cannot get down ah who is it is it you miss susie come up careful and guide my feet ah that is right thank you says madame once landed from the ladder panting and shaking herself that's good for nothing max it tis all him he will not have the apples in his atelier such fancies i went up to see if there was room in the grenier and i lost my poor old head had you been there long said susie an age said madame mysteriously i have scream for an age you have saved my life madame must have had good nerves for she soon recovered her breath and her composure and she invited susie to accompany her on her explorations madame led the way downstairs the neatest imaginable little rembrandt like figure in her white cap and black skirts was it not a well-built handsome house she said her poor husband had planned it all it was hers now it would all belong to max one day he was her only son is he a painter said susie no he is a graver on steel this is where he work said madame as she opened the great door of the atelier with pride and led the way into a huge room with a big window built out into the garden it was more like a barn than anything else it was furnished in the simplest roughest way but there was something which gave a touch of life and of romance to it all to the odds and ends the plaster casts the photographs upon the walls to the old orange curtain swinging across the window it was the something which belongs to all that concerns those mystical worlds of art those dreams of eternal of life which passes away 
Madame, who had some perception under her frill nightcap, secretly wished for Max to make a drawing of the young life now walking into his great shabby atelier. The slanting stream of morning came dazzling from the high window into the girl's face, and as she moved aside she found Madame's blinking eyes approvingly fixed upon her. "'Ah, you should know my son,' said Madame, who did not beat about the bush. "'He want to marry. He is a good boy, very handsome, not like me. He take after his poor father.' "'And is your son engaged to be married?' Susie asked. "'No,' says Madame. "'I have not yet found the lady.' He say to me, "'Mamma, find me a wife if you will, but she must have a dough. I have seen you and my poor papa in such torment and difficulty for money that I will not marry without a dough. I should wish my wife to have a carriage, if possible. This house is so far from the barrier.' "'It is reasonable, is it not, and well said?' very reasonable indeed said susie laughing she did not take interest enough in monsieur max to be shocked by madame's very matter-of-fact explanation max he works a leo forte continued madame beginning to dust and straighten he have worked for all the best houses he have made pictures for mr charles blanc look that is his table and she pointed to a business-like looking table in a window shaded by a slanting frame through which the light came softened by silver paper all the many murderous appliances of the peaceful art daggers stilettos sharpened blades and piercing points were heaped in the tray the dabbers lay together the oil pots and acids stood in a row along a shelf against the wall a sort of iron oven had been erected near the fireplace to which madame proudly pointed those are the hot plates you could not touch them when the gas is turned on the extravagant he buy that pretty piano only last year he is never here to touch upon it do you like music? You can come when you like to play. Susie's eyes brighten at this permission. You need not be afraid to come. Max have not been near the place for two months. That is his portrait. Wicked good for nothing. And she pointed to a charcoal head curling from the wall where it had been fastened by a single nail. It represented a long-nosed, frizzle-headed person with a sort of grin. It is like, said Madame, ah, you will see he is an handsome fellow. There are his portfolios. Look what he can do. And while Madame ferreted about with dusters and spectacles, Susie opened the big portfolio on the chair and began turning over picture after picture, not a little puzzled by some, delighted by others. She had absolutely no experience or knowledge of art, but some natural taste. As she stood there, someone came in at the door. It was not the owner of the studio, only the lodger, the colonel, coming back from his water-cure, who now stood looking in, attracted, as most idle people are, by an open doorway. "'Come in, come in, Monsieur le Colonel,' says Madame hospitably. "'Come and see my son's work. You are which. You should buy some of his pictures to hang on the walls of your chateau. Show Monsieur le Colonel what you have in that portfolio, my dear child.' And Susie, instinctively turning accomplice, pulled at the yellow curtain to keep out the dazzling sun, and then began holding up one engraving after another. The colonel stood by gravely, looking through his glasses. There were pictures of every sort. Portraits, fancy pieces, holy families, original sketches, and copies from the old masters. "'This is a very pretty picture,' said Susie, holding up a landscape, delicately etched with sunlight and shade and water reflecting, and April clouds drifting across the sky." 
that is not unlike Tarndale where I live, where my children are at present, said the colonel, wondering what Susie would say. It is certainly an admirable engraving. Your children, said Susie, pausing, have you... He interrupted her. My children would not seem children to you, Miss Holcomb. My son is seventeen, my daughter is sixteen. And her name is Tempe, is it not? cried Susanna, clasping her hands, with a look very bright, and then very sad. Oh, I am so glad. I hoped so it might be you when Mamma told me your name. And then she told him of her meeting at the castle, of her acquaintance with Tempe, of that happy day so short a time ago, so long ago. Susie was thankful to speak to anyone who seemed interested, not pained, by what she had to remember. Her mother used always to shrink from it all. To Mrs. Marney, the dear old grandfather had only seemed a judge. She had never understood him. It was a delight and an ease of mind to Susie to talk of him, of his goodness, to so kind and sympathizing a listener as the colonel. And then Tempe, too, seemed a fresh bond between them. Were they coming to Paris? How delightful Susie was! If Susie was pleased, her new friend was not less pleased. The girl interested him more and more. What a friend for Tempe! How glad he should be to bring them together! "'Well, what are you about? You are not looking at the pictures!' cried Madame, and Susie, recalled to her duty, held up a new print. "'Here is a very pretty one,' said she. "'I think this must be Ruth and Naomi.' "'Yes, my dear child,' said the old lady, coming up and giving her an approving pat. "'Ah, that is the daughter-in-law I should wish to have. Just see how well it is done. Look at the veil, Colonel, and the necklace. And the expression. Oh, what expression!' "'But Ruth had no dough, madame,' said Susie, a little maliciously, with one of her pretty, bright looks. "'Ding-dong, ding-dong, Susie, ding-dong, Susie.' comes from the garden outside. One little brother is rattling a stick in a flower-pot, the other is pretending to be a bell. Venez déjeuner, sous! cried the children, in the jumble of French and English habitually used by those young Anglo-Parisians. They come thumping along the passage to the doors of the studio, peep in, and run away, and Susie turns at the summons. "'Do not forget to come and play the piano,' said Madame, calling after her. "'You shall give my little goddaughter, Marie Pinchot, some music lessons, if you like. "'She is coming to stay here.' "'I should be very glad,' said Susie, simply. "'And as she spoke, an idea came into the worthy Colonel's head. "'The little boys trotted along the passage, followed by their sister. "'The summons to breakfast was an improvisation on their part.' The meal was still frizzling and boiling in the pans and pots through which breakfast is transmogrified on its way to the table. The children burst open a door with an accustomed air. Susie followed and found herself not in the dining-room, but in a sunny little kitchen full of fumes and sunshine where her mother stood bending over the stove. It was a contrast to her last invasion. Mrs. Marney looked up confused, somewhat displeased, and blushing crimson, with a spoon in her hand and her dress pinned back. "'Oh, mamma! cried Susie. "'Why don't you make me do this?' And she sprang forward. "'Are these your letters that you write before breakfast?' "'I—I I thought you would be vexed, dear, if I told you it was I who did the cooking, not Denise,' said Mrs. Marney humbly. "'I know all this is not what you have been accustomed to at home.' "'Don't!'
cried Susanna, flinging her arms round her mother's neck. I have not been accustomed to a mamma. Meanwhile, Mick and Dermot, who seemed bent upon revealing the family secrets, went on their way through a second door, which led across a passage to the little anteroom where the family met at meals. Through this open door came a sudden burst of anger and impatience. "'Go away, you urchins! Where the devil is your mother?' cries a voice. "'Tell her!' "'Yes, dear, yes,' Mrs. Marney calls out, hastily interrupting, and turning back to her eggs again. "'Go, Susie, dear, and talk to him.' Susie, blushing and with some repugnance, crossed the passage and said good morning to her stepfather, who was sitting with a pile of papers at a table where some cups were set upon the oilcloth. He didn't look up and seemed little inclined for her company, and she went into the sitting-room to wait for her mother's coming. The garden outside looked pleasant and green. The room itself was a scene of confusion. The round table was covered with pens, papers, and ink. A black bottle and a dirty glass stood in the center by the lamp, that cloud by day, that pillar of light by night, under which Marney wrote his articles, and Mrs. Marney patched the family patches. Opened and unopened, a heap of newspapers were flung on a chair by the table. A pair of slippers that Marney had thrown off were lying as they had fallen. There was a sofa with yellow cushions tumbling tipsily about, and a great yellow armchair piled with children's garments. The doors of the cupboard were swinging open. It was a dingy, untidy-looking room, and Denise had certainly done little but undo the shutters that morning. Susie, with housewifely instincts, looked round and began folding and straightening some of the disorder into order. She picked up the torn papers from the floor and threw them into the waste-basket. One scrap was written twice, on two different sheets, in Marnie's tidy handwriting. Susie could not help seeing it and wondering what it meant. It is with the greatest pain and reluctance that I have written so plainly. Your kind and generous heart will. Susie blushed, read no more, and threw the paper away with the rest. Then she turned to the newspapers. She had laid hands upon one or two of them and began to pile them tidy when an exclamation from one of the little boys who had come into the room stopped her. Mustn't touch! said the little boy, whipping his top. Father will beat you if you touch. I don't think he will beat me, Dermy, said Susie, laughing, but I will leave the papers alone if he does not like them to be touched. He always scolds when Mamma touches, said Dermot. Dis donc, ma soeur, continued the little boy. Did the colonel give you any pictures? And the child came up and slipped his hand into Susie's. The little bright face looked up quite artlessly. Susie was puzzled. "'He gave me no pictures, dear,' she said, stroking his head. "'Why didn't you ask for some?' said the other little fellow. "'We always ask.' Again Susie's heart began to sink with vague apprehension. She already felt that there must be much in her new life from which she must turn away, much that she must be content to ignore. A time came before very long when the poor girl could no longer pretend not to see what was passing before her eyes. Susie used to meet the colonel constantly after that morning, as people do meet who are living in a little suburban boarding-houses. One day he stopped, and looked greatly embarrassed, and finally asked her whether it was true that she had consented to give little Marie Pichot lessons in music. "'Yes,' said Susie. "'I am very proud of earning a little money.' "'It has occurred to me that perhaps you would allow your friend Tempe to profit by your delightful acquirement,' said the colonel. The music mistress we have been counting upon has just failed us. If you would agree to my daughter's terms, it would be a great kindness on your part. But I couldn't teach well enough, said Susie, blushing and opening her round eyes, and I'm sure if I could, I wouldn't like to— 
to—' "'I know I have offended you,' said the Colonel, looking so crestfallen that, rather than give him pain, Susie doubtfully agreed. "'It is absurd,' said she, looking up, "'but I know what you have done for Mamma. Will you let me try to pay part of her debt to you?' "'We will talk of that presently,' said the Colonel, brightening again. "'I will come and speak to your mother if she is at home this afternoon.' A little later in the day, the colonel came as he had promised. Marney was out. Mrs. Marney and her daughter were sitting together in the window of the sitting-room. "'Come in, colonel,' said Mrs. Marney, in her friendly, welcoming way. "'What is this my Susie tells me?' The colonel had soon talked Mrs. Marney over, and she was willing enough that Susie should be paid, and indeed her admiration for Susie's music was unbounded. "'I can't think where the child gets it all. I never could play a note,' Mrs. Marney declared." This matter being settled, the colonel presently found himself with a poetry book in his hand, reading to the two as they sat at their darns. He had not done anything so sweet and to his taste for a very long time. As he read, he looked up and saw Susie's eyes fixed upon him. She had let her work fall into her lap for a moment as she listened. The hooves of Marmion's charger were ringing on the drawbridge of Tintalian Castle. She seemed carried away far from the little villa, from the green garden, the homely daily toil. The great wizard had laid his spell upon her. As for the reader, dry old colonel as he was, the girl's bright look touched him. He went back to his rooms feeling as if they were strangely dull and deserted. And still more so was the grand apartment he had taken for his son and daughter, to which he reluctantly moved next day. All the life and interest in the place seemed to him centered in that bare little parlor where the two women were sitting at work hour after hour, while the little boys played in the garden outside. Tempy was a very dear girl, and Fanny was a superior woman, but they did not seem to make things look so peacefully homelike as these two. Tempy would have opened her eyes if she could have read her father's thought. What? That? A home? That little shabby, untidy parlor, scattered over with scraps? Impossible. End of section 5